Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing... The big salaries and the plum jobs that politicians give to their mates. When it really smells is when there is no process and someone is sort of parachuted into the role without actually working out whether they are the best person for the job. Yeah, a big scandal in New South Wales has put jobs for mates back on the agenda. The controversial former politician John Barillaro has been dominating the headlines in recent weeks. He was given a 500k a year trade commissioner job in New York. So he's had to now resign from that position and there's an inquiry into how it happened. There has been some bombshell evidence. Yeah, we'll explore that and all the other plum gigs that politicians give to their friends in our briefing topic in just a moment. First, here are today's headlines. It is Tuesday the 26th of July. Parliament kicks off today for the first time since the election. This week we'll have at least 18 pieces of legislation, including legislation for our climate change targets, a 10 days paid domestic violence leave, responding to the Aged Care Royal Commission. That's the Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek and she mentioned the climate targets there. That'll be a very interesting point of discussion when they introduce that legislation tomorrow. The 43% reduction target will pass the lower house easily, but they need to get the Greens to support it in the Senate, which is where it gets more tricky. Mm, And so far, the government has agreed to making the 43% target a floor rather than a ceiling. But the Greens want a moratorium on all new coal and gas developments as well. And one person who won't be there for this uh, first sitting week of the new Albanese government is the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. (laughs) Um, He's had a scheduling clash. He... Plan to go to Japan instead to attend a conference of former conservative leaders. And that's uh, fueling speculation in the nine newspapers that he might not be in parliament for that much longer. Not that interested, maybe. Some grim news about COVID hospitalisations. They are the highest they've ever been. That's right, ever. Yeah, so yesterday they hit 5,439 and that's breaking the January record from the first Omicron wave. In better news, though, only 161 people, so 3% of patients, are in the ICU. More than 300 were in the ICU at the height of Delta last October, and more than 400 were admitted during the January Omicron wave. And more than 460 people died over the last week, um, but the worst week in terms of the death toll was over 600 in January. Meantime, our hospital system is under strain. In Victoria, there have been instances of ICU patients getting sent straight home instead of being transferred to general wards because of a lack of beds. And yesterday in South Australia, 75 people couldn't get a hospital bed who needed one. And in the latest move to defend against foot and mouth disease, all packages sent from Indonesia and China will need to be screened. That's going to be huge, isn't it? So authorities say the biggest risk for the virus getting in is not through dirty thongs coming back from Bali, or, or footwear, we should say, but through animal products being delivered in mail or freight. Uh, usually, Australian Biosecurity uses x-rays and dogs to check a proportion of all mail, but now all parcels from Indonesia and China will be scanned. Yes, yeah, so foot and mouth was found in Indonesia in May and spread to Bali early this month sparking fears that tourists could bring it back and uh, decimate an $80 billion industry. So they've also introduced the sanitation mats. They're covered in citric acid. They've been installed at airports around the country to um, defend it against people's shoes, which is obviously still a key risk. 
Seven NRL players are refusing to play for their club this Thursday night over Manly's decision to wear a pride jersey, and that includes a rainbow strip. Yeah, so this group of players, I mean, seven players, it's a a big Mm. part of a rugby league team when they only have 13. Um, So half the team, they've rejected wearing this pride jumper in a meeting um, called Overnight. They're rejecting it for cultural and religious reasons, and they say they were blindsided by the decision of the club to wear this jersey. They want to wear the traditional jersey, but the NRL won't allow players on the field in an alternative strip. So the coach, Des Hasler, and the skipper, Dally Cherry Evans, will address the issue later today. Hasler, as you mentioned, Tommy needs to find seven new players by 4pm. Yeah, and it's a big match for Manly. They're against the Roosters. Um, they're both in equal eighth place, so one of them will drop out of the top eight when they lose. And this is um, the first time an NRL club, in this case the Seagulls, is wearing a pride jersey, but it's clearly causing a lot of problems, Katrina. Yeah, it's clearly backfired. And uh, the other thing, Tom, is it's going to overshadow the launch of the Women in League round, which was going to be happening this morning. So, you know, instead of that being all about women in league, I'm guessing everyone attending that breakfast is going to be asked a lot of questions about this. And the Eurovision Song Contest won't be held in Ukraine next year. So they won this year's song competition and meaning they had the right to host the next event and they wanted to do it and submitted a safety plan but organisers deemed it too dangerous due to the war with Russia. The event will now be held in the UK next year because the UK came second in this year's song contest. So that's how they worked that one out. Uh, They've promised to celebrate Ukraine as part of their event uh, once they work out which UK city to host it in because it's, as you know, such a huge event. So there'd be lots of cities wanting that extra tourism dollar. And a big shout out to anyone that's written to us on Instagram. Some really interesting feedback to a number of our stories. Um, I'll read this one from Susie, who responded to our long COVID briefing last week. Um, Susie says, I contracted glandular fever in my early 20s. I never really felt quite the same. In my late 30s, I developed post-viral syndrome or CFS or ME. I am now 59 and it has completely changed my life. My hope is that money will now be spent on researching this debilitating condition, talking about long COVID, as it certainly hasn't been done with the above mentioned ones that I've experienced. Oh, thanks so much, Susie, for taking such an interest in that topic. And there's so many people and and potentially more people who are going to go through that before this next wave is through. So, and thanks for reaching out to us on Instagram. Yeah, and there are a few people um, writing about Splendour as well. One person who (laughs) woke up almost floating on their air mattress. There was so much water. Uh, Another person says, what a shitful weekend, (laughs) followed by Splendour Flu. Oh, wow. no. That's not the memento you want. No, still people manage to have a great time, though, which is just amazing. Um, mm. Still people posting about their experiences. I, I guess one thing you could say is that it's a festival none of those people will ever forget. <laughs> All right, in just a moment, John Barillaro and Jobs for Mates. There was more damning evidence today about John Barillaro's New York posting. Mr Barillaro had a meeting with then-Treasurer Dom Perrottet. This is the job for when I get the f*** out of this place. The revelations this morning are nothing short than explosive. Mr Barillaro maintains there was proper process. He's withdrawn from going to New York. 
So those are some of the headlines coming out of the John Barillaro scandal in New South Wales politics. Uh, We're going to take a look at the broader issue of jobs for mates. But first up, we're going to recap you on this Barillaro story, which I know you've been deeply fascinated by, Tom. Well, yeah, it's been on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald almost every day for the last month or so. So John Barillaro was, up until the end of last year, the Deputy Premier of New South Wales... Um, He's the Nationals leader as well, or he was, until he resigned from politics at the end of last year. The last time we talked about him here on the briefing in any depth was when he was in a legal battle with Friendly Geordies, the YouTuber. And it's fair to say he's had a lot of controversy during his time in politics. Now, regarding this recent scandal around the Trade Commissioner role, he actually created a series of roles when he was Minister for Trade in 2020. So there were five well-paid jobs around the world to boost New South Wales trading relationships in key markets. Then the next year, there was a recruitment process and he actually began announcing some of the positions, like the Tokyo position, the London position. Um, The New York position had been through a recruitment process as well. And as we're finding out now through a parliamentary inquiry, a verbal offer was given to a woman called Jenny West. She'd had a lot of great experience. She was the Deputy Secretary of Investment New South Wales. But then in October, that offer was withdrawn. And then you cut to this year and we found out in June that John Barillaro himself had been given this position. (laughs) Then there was so much controversy, yeah, that he was forced to stand down and now it's all coming out. Okay, that really helps me from someone interstate being able to see just how juicy this really Mm. is. Especially when Jenny West was apparently told that she would have the job and then it was later withdrawn. Wow. Yeah. And so in the evidence she's given, she said she was told that the job, when when it was taken away, that it would be a present for someone. (laughs) And then after that, another juicy piece of evidence, Barillaro's former chief of staff, Mark Connell, said in a statement that Barillaro told him, this is a job for when I get the F out of this place. Okay. Barillaro's rejected that saying the conversation he's recalled is fictitious, false and only serves as a reminder as to why we had to part ways. But yeah, there's some of the juicy bits of evidence coming out. So this scandal serves as a pretty great backdrop to a report that's just come out by the Grattan Institute, which has found the practice of jobs for mates could be a lot more insidious than any of us thought. Nearly a quarter of Australia's most well-paid and prestigious public sector jobs are apparently stacked with political appointees. To shine a light on what goes on behind closed doors to make all of this happen is Danielle Wood. She's the CEO of the Grattan Institute and a co-author of the report called Put an End to Jobs. Jobs for mates. Danielle Wood, thanks for joining us. What do you make of the John Barillaro controversy? Uh, look, I think it is an example of what probably a lot of us suspect has been going on, but, but really brings to the fore that people in powerful positions are sometimes able to use those positions to give their friends or even themselves in this case a nice job at the end of their political career. And, you know, what we see, I think, is that It really smells. The the public doesn't like this. This is a really important, well-paid job and it shouldn't be given away without a proper process. 
So it seems like there can be a bit of a distinction where some jobs for mates are above board and given the public tick of approval and some aren't, like when the former Labor government gave their former leader, Kim Beasley, a pretty plum job as the US ambassador, no one minded. But when Joe Hockey was given the same job later on, that was fine too. So what's the difference? Why was that okay? And why was John Barillaro's appointment as New South Wales Trade Commissioner in New York creating so much controversy? do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And and to some degree, it probably reflects historical practice. So there have been a few of those kind of ambassador roles, uh, like the US, like London, uh, which have tended to go to former politicians. It is more of a problem when it starts to creep out and become a lot more widespread. But the key point is really if you run a proper process and if, you know, having political skills and connections are relevant for the job, and and I guess some people would argue that is for the US Embassy in London, having those networks matters, then those people will rise to the top. But I think when it really smells is when there is no process and someone is sort of parachuted into the role without actually working out whether they are the best person for the job. So you've done a study looking at this whole issue and it's really interesting reading. For our listeners, can you give a sense of the kinds of jobs that are up for grabs here? There's obviously the ambassadors, as you've discussed, trade commissioners, administrative appeals, tribunal members, board positions on organisations like the ABC and Australia Post. Are there more roles and what are the salaries like? Uh, Yeah, there's a huge range of roles. Actually, we were surprised when we started to look. um, I mean, just if we just look at the Commonwealth government level, you know, you're talking thousands of roles overall, but the ones where we tend to see former ministers and advisors appointed tend to be a narrower subset, the ones that we sort of said are well-paid, they're prestigious uh, or they're powerful. So if you're talking about something like the board of a government business enterprise, something like Australia Post or the NBN, you know, that can be paid sort of eighty dollars to $100,000 a year. That's not a full-time role. That's a, mm. that's a role um, as a board member attending a number of board meetings a year. Uh, if you look at something like the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, Full-time members there typically earn between three hundred and five hundred thousand dollars a year, and then commissioners and, and board members for powerful agencies like the ACCC and, and ASIC and the Productivity Commission, uh, and then again you're talking in that sort of three hundred to, to five hundred thousand dollar range. So, you know what the public needs to understand is these are, are very well paid. Um, clearly, you know, well above uh, the average Australian would earn. They are, in many cases, quite powerful. They're running big, important institutions. That is why, you know, making sure we are getting the right people and that they're not just seen as kind of nice things to give to friends is critically important. So what did you find about how these roles are appointed? What do you have to do while you're you're in (laughs) politics? Who do you have to be friends with? Is there a bit of a, a system or a procedure to this? It's not consistent. And I think that is a really important message. So for some of these roles, um, they will go through a a process, a merit process, and candidates might be interviewed and names put forward. Interestingly enough, at the moment, because ministers still have discretion, where we can see, and we did a whole lot of freedom of information requests to try and work out what happened, um, we do certainly see cases where names are being put forward by the department who's done the process and then a different set of names come out from the minister's office and those those ones tend to be the ones that have the political connections. So even where a process has happened, 
you can still see cases where ministers have put forward people who are known to them for the roles, but it's not consistent across the board. And I think that's really important. There is a lot of scope under the current rules for for ministers to, to intervene either right at the start or at the death knell. So are there some broad categories that are given to the way these jobs are appointed where some are, you know, known to be government appointments and some are supposed to be independent? So some of them do have um, more structured appointment processes. So things like the ABC board where uh, we know that politicisation has been a concern in the past, have a structure set up where an independent panel will put forward shortlisted candidates to the minister. Things like the ambassador roles, I think it, it has been yet more understood that there's certain rights to appoint um, by the government of the day, certain roles. So there is a distinction based on the the type of role at the moment. Yeah, this whole thing really, really pisses people off, doesn't it? Do you think the public have a right to be outraged about the way these appointments are dished out? I do think they have a right to be outraged. I mean, we elect... Our members of parliament and our ministers sign up to a, a ministerial code of conduct that says they make decisions in the public interest. So what we want to be able to do is, you know, let them do their thing for, for three years and, you know, assume that they're, they're thinking about the public in the way they conduct themselves. So when they're giving away these, you know, well-paid, powerful jobs to people without a process, when they're disproportionately going to people that they're are known to them as their former colleagues or advisors. I think it's not sticking with that ministerial code. It's not sticking with that faith that they have with the public. And, and I think people do have a right to be annoyed. So now that you've done a real deep dive into this area, what are your thoughts around how we should make this whole thing work? Because, I mean, there are some attributes that politicians have that would make them very useful in these kinds of roles. So what do you think we should do about all of this? That's right. So I don't think these roles should be totally off limits to former politicians or advisors, as some have suggested. I think what we should do, and it's not revolutionary, is make sure that for each and every one of these roles, there is a merit selection process. We've recommended it be done, including a member of a new body, the Public Appointments Commissioner, who oversees these appointments. The panels that get set up will put forward a short list of names to the minister, and the minister can only choose from the short list. So what we're trying to do is get rid of that situation I was talking about, where a bunch of names go into the minister's office and a very different set of names come out. And, you know, frankly, that's pretty much in line with what all of us would have gone through to, to, to get our jobs. You know, the idea that you kind of compete in a process, people are lined up, you compare their skills and, and then make a call about who's the best person for the job is something that, that most of us are very familiar with and should apply to these really important roles. Well, that was Danielle Wood, who's the CEO of the Grattan Institute, and she co-authored that report, Put an End to Jobs for Mates. So I'm not in New South Wales, Tom, but I've certainly been reading all about it. And the John Barillaro thing seems to have really got under people's skin in a whole new way. Yeah, understandably, half a million dollar salary. And (laughs) I guess this is just one case we've, we've found out about. It's potentially other cases we haven't. And as she said, there's thousands of these jobs going. So we do need a much more transparent, rigorous process around these appointments. Tomorrow on The Briefing, Scott Morrison's final act as Prime Minister 
has been described as shameful by the Labor Party. Um, there's been an investigation uh, into their announcement about a boat arrival from Sri Lanka. We're going to take a deep look at that in tomorrow's briefing. Listener.